You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, these podcasts can be heard at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 4, given in Copenhagen on the 4th of June, 1910, the second lecture. When we speak about the paths and goals of the spiritual human being, we will repeatedly be faced with the question, why should we think about following such special paths? Why are we pointed by spiritual science towards setting ourselves such goals? The answer to that has to turn into sentiment and feeling for us. It has repeatedly been pointed out that forces are slumbering in human nature, and in nature which are striving to develop and which can be developed. Apart from the human being who can see and hear in the physical world, each person has a higher human being within themselves. The latter exists in embryo as a kind of seed. Spiritual science makes us aware of that with ever greater urgency. This is a human being of whom ordinary consciousness does not know a great deal. We have to have a clear sense of the following. The thing of which we have an overview right now is our ordinary everyday human being. But the one who is slumbering in us, who is predisposed within us as a seed, is a spiritual human being. Whether the latter develops or not is dependent on our ordinary human being. We can prepare the ground with the forces of our ordinary human being, but we can also leave it unprepared and not bother with it. Then we neglect our duty toward our spiritual human being. We can prepare the ground for this higher human being through spiritual science itself, through what it can give us as teaching and information. If we transform such insight into sentiment and feeling, that will give us the answer to the question, is it not a higher kind of egoism to concern ourselves with ourselves in this way? For as long as we have not learned about spiritual science, it is our karma to wait. But once we have heard about the higher human being slumbering in us, it is our duty to do those things which can bring those forces to development so that we can better fulfill our tasks in the world. We cannot therefore speak of egoism in this context, but only of the obligation toward our spiritual human being. That is the correct attitude of the theosophist with regard to external life. Theosophy tells us a number of things which have been obtained through spiritual research. But that does not mean that everyone who wishes to live theosophy needs to be a researcher into the spirit. The more we can tread the path of our inner development, the better it is. But before we ourselves achieve results in the field of spiritual research, we have to allow others to tell us its content. If we have considered the question for a sufficient length of time, external life will confirm the reports of the spiritual researchers. 
Once we have understood this information with healthy logic, we have obtained the possibility of ascending to higher worlds. Reason and logic are safe guides in this respect. The question can arise, how should we use this information? How should we approach it? Take the truth which we describe as the law of karma. It says that we find events in later lives on earth which refer to earlier incarnations. The more we make use of such laws of spiritual research in life, the more we will see how true they are. Just as we will never find a triangle in the sensory world whose angles do not produce the total sum of 180 degrees, so the circumstances of life must always confirm what has been found as a law in spiritual research. And if the karmic effects do not appear to us to agree, then this will most likely correspond to the minor deviations which might arise when measuring a circle with a planimeter. The result might perhaps be 361 degrees the first time and 359 the second time, but that does not invalidate the law itself. Equally, the law of gravity is not upset if a push makes the plumb bob of an Atwood machine swing to the side. It only proves that a different result is achieved if a new force is applied. Spiritual research further shows how we are faced with repetitions of previous periods within the life between birth and death. What we acquired, for example, in early childhood, between the ages of three and seven, returns in its karmic effects in very old age. If we study how someone spent their early childhood, we will discover a remarkable connection in old age with these childhood years. If they developed healthy needs instead of having been subject to the outer constraint of specific rules, their old age will take a different form. But it frequently happens that people graft on to or cram into the child's soul what they consider to be the right thing. But that is beside the point, because each child must develop the want to do this or that from his or her own volition. It then turns out that a person can retain their health in old age, that they can retain a freshness and inner strength into the final period of their life. There are, meanwhile, even more significant connections. You can learn much from the handwriting of people about the way their past has been developed. In the age from 7 to 14, it is necessary that human beings are educated not to make use of their reason prematurely. Authority must have the effect that truth appears to us as such. If we can admire the people who surround us in that section of our lives, this can stand us in good stead in the last but one section of our lives. To look reverently up to the wonders of nature in a prayerful mood are beneficial factors for later. Happy acceptance of authority returns in transformation in such a way that it becomes apparent that such a person has authority. Reverence, which children in this period are able to develop, has the consequence that they become people who, without needing to do anything, only need to be in the company of others in order to appear to have a benedictive effect. The hands which were never able to fold in reverence will never be able to give a blessing. Those who have never learned to bend their knee will never be able to give a blessing. Once you have fully understood such a law, you will find it confirmed. 
In this way we can already trace the effects of the law of karma in the period of a human life. Thus life everywhere gives us proof of laws which are at work in all fields. Circumstances can of course occur which conceal the law. In physics we have the law of falling bodies, for example. Imagine an object which at a given moment moves through space without any support, wholly without external influence. As a result of the law we have just mentioned, this object will approach the earth with increasing acceleration until it hits the earth. The object will move toward the center of the earth in accordance with very specific laws. It will fall. Imagine further that suddenly the falling object is hit by a horizontal impact. In this case, the naive observer waiting for the arrival at the relevant spot on the earth of the object, falling vertically as the result of the law of gravity, will wait in vain. The object remains absent. Does that mean that the law of falling bodies has been negated? Of course not. It is just that another force has been added to the horizontal strike and the object now moves toward the earth under its influence in a curve which corresponds completely with the law of gravity and the subsequent additional force. At the place where, under these circumstances, the object hits the ground, its fall will be seen by an observer as something completely random, unpredictable. But that is not so. The laws are complete and incorruptible. The same applies in full to the law of karma, although we can only rarely follow it in all its compounded and entangled effects. That is why people are constantly inclined to doubt their karma. But however much external maya confuses us, we should only let ourselves be instructed by what has become law in our soul. Many who want to develop the forces of the spirit within themselves will not find it easy, because life, the physical always squeezes in. All it needs is an obstacle in our life and we easily allow ourselves through a wrong judgment to be carried away into hurling an insult, for example, without thinking of the consequences of our action. We hit a person and are unaware that we have raised our hand against ourselves because this blow will come back to hit us at the given time. The law of karma is everywhere at work. Everything that happens to us in life happens under the law of karma. But just because we consider this law simply as a teaching, a theory, that does not yet make us theosophists. There are two feelings we have to make our own if we want to work on our spiritual human being. On the one hand, we have to tell ourselves everything about us could still achieve greater perfection. There is no limit to our ascent. At every moment the feeling of imperfection must be an incentive to want to climb higher and higher on the ladder of perfection, which has no highest rung. We have to keep placing that before our soul, because otherwise we will not advance a single step in our work on our spiritual human being. On the other hand, we should say to ourselves, a second step is necessary. At every moment we should feel that an infinite possibility of perfection lies in us. We should make our hidden human being as large as possible. That appears to be a contradiction, and human beings must feel it as such. Our development is packaged between these two points. 
the feeling of our own imperfection and the striving to make the hidden human being as large as possible. Those who strive as mystics to enter into their own interior, who wish to make progress through inner contemplation, must pass through the first point. They have to make humility their own. The best rule which mystics can make for themselves is this, to think of everything they encounter in their own interior as being as imperfect as possible and to disregard their own personality completely. Because anyone who descends into their own interior must be prepared to experience terrible things. Stories of tragic events take place in the inner world of human beings who dare to enter the depths of their own being. A Tauler, an Eckhart, a Paul have something to say about that. And what was the help they sought against the dangers? Paul said, Not I, but Christ in me wishes to act. Take with you the Master, the Ideal, but alongside have the feeling that egoism has to be driven out. It is not their own I, capital, which should feel, want, and conceive everything. Their unworthy I had to be driven out. This feeling is very similar to the feeling of shame in ordinary people. Wanting to be someone else, wanting to organize something else into one's own soul, that is the path of mysticism. And what belongs to the path of occultism? The path of occultism leads into the external world. If human beings want to follow the occult path, they have to live in such a way that they gradually have to learn to become used to enduring the higher world when they leave their body during sleep. They must acquire the feeling of perfecting themselves to infinity. But here, too, a danger lies, like for the mystics when they descend into their own interior. We describe the dangers which affected the mystics. They themselves spoke about them. Nothing is said about the path of the occultist. Each person must familiarize themselves with this danger on their own. When we look into our own interior, it would be bad if we had not learned to feel ourselves as a unity which is infused throughout our whole being. Such being, able to hold fast to a unity, is torn apart by each passion which overcomes us. Anger, jealousy, hate destroy our power of being able to direct our gaze at the unity. And the worst thing is if we have not learned to concentrate if we are driven all over the place. We have to learn to feel ourselves as a unity firmly and unaffectedly. If as occultists we seek the path into the external world, we have to discard our personality as it has just been characterized. Here we must not seek a unity which underlies the whole of the external world. Because when we turn outward toward the spiritual world, we encounter an endless variety of beings and circumstances. If an occultist were to attempt to penetrate the all-embracing unity which underlies the whole manifest world, they would perish. Imagine a drop of red liquid, and this drop is poured into a large basin of water. Liquid as the drop is, it would immediately dissolve into the mass of water. It would dissipate. That is what would happen to the insecure eye if it wanted to enter the world of the all-embracing unity.
We must not dare to penetrate there alone, because we would lose ourselves like the red drop is lost in the mass of water. If we want to enter the astral sphere, we are directed toward a multiplicity. We have to start with the multiplicity, with the beings who are higher than us, with those who have themselves in stages passed through a higher development, with the hierarchies of that world. We must not want to skip anything, because it would be a presumption to want to penetrate straight to the highest. We have to learn in stages to study with the help of the higher beings, if we want to understand the all-embracing unity. The arrogance to want to penetrate to the highest will most certainly lead us to stumble. We must not allow ourselves to be misled through our monotheistic ideas to believe that when the veil which separates us from the spiritual world slides aside, we will only see a single, divine, all-embracing unity. We see a multiplicity, and we have to turn our gaze to the multiplicity. But how are we meant to find our way? Pythagoras said, Do not seek multiplicity with your eyes, ears, and senses. Seek it through the number. We should approach multiplicity armed with the number. Just as the mystics have to decant the ideal of higher perfection into their interior, so the occultist has to appeal to the number. And here there is a characteristic which is absolutely necessary, namely security. We have to feel secure. Because if human beings waver, what are they? They are a will-o'-the-wisp, a flickering light, and the world is a labyrinth. We need Ariadne's thread to find the way back. The number gives us firmness. That is what we have to keep our I-E-Y-E on. If you wish to enter the spiritual world, you have to step out of yourself, have initially to go into the chaos of multiplicity. How do we find the factor? Where do we find an ordering principle? We find it through the number, through the laws of numbers. We have to penetrate the nature of the number and learn to know its true value. The number alone can become our guide in the labyrinth. The number can teach us many things, and profound secrets underlie certain numbers. Take the number two. Everything that appears in life is revealed in the number two. Right, not without left. Light, not without dark. Everything that manifests externally is subject to the number two. The number two is the number of revelation, the number of manifestation. The number three is the number of the laws of the soul, thinking, feeling, and volition. To the extent that something organizes and structures itself in the soul entity, it is subject to the number three. Where the number three is revealed as one of the laws, there is an underlying soul element. We can find the number three in innumerable relationships. In the three Logoi, we have the three basic forces which refer back to something divine and of the soul. The number seven applies with regard to all things temporal. Saturn, Sun, Moon, Earth, Jupiter, Venus, and Vulcan, which designate the seven consecutive evolutionary states. Where we see something simultaneously working together, we obtain the number twelve, 
the twelve gods, the twelve apostles, and so on. The reduction of the fixed stars to the twelve signs of the zodiac is also connected with this. The number twelve teaches us another law as well. Think of materialism. Is materialism wrong? It does not need to be so as long as people do not carry it into the soul element. If we want to be materialists, we have to pay homage to vitalism. Then we learn to understand material life. But we have to choose a different perspective for the soul and spiritual entity. If we wish to understand the world in its abundance, we have to be able to adopt a variety of standpoints. We have to follow the practical path of the spirit. Now, we might hear someone express the principle, you have to create a certain system for yourself if you want to penetrate into the higher worlds. But that is the worst way we could go. We should, in contrast, first step out of our own personality. From the center which this personality occupies in its existence to the horizon of our physical existence, and only here, at the horizon, should we adopt a specific standpoint, first the materialistic one, and look at it from the inside, from the one perspective, by which means, as already mentioned, we learn to know material life. Only then can we walk around the horizon and choose twelve different perspectives. That is the only way which can lead to real knowledge. Practical occultists have to become very selfless before they can walk the horizon in a circle. They receive unity in external and internal things in that they have to forget their personal I, capital, twelve times. The end of Lecture 4